0: me a favor. Turn in your Bible to John's Gospel, chapter 17, and we're picking up in verse 20. If you haven't been with us for a while, or maybe ever, we have spent the better part of this year in John's Gospel. We started back in December, sort of leading up to Christmas, and then we took a couple weeks off for the new year, and then we jumped right back into John. We've gone straight through John in most of the spring, and mostly through John in the last... Uh, I guess a couple of months of summer, and over the time that we've spent in John, uh, we've seen Jesus do all sorts of things. We've we've seen the the conflicts that Jesus has had with religious leaders. We've seen the miracles that Jesus has performed. We've seen all of the stupidity of the disciples and them not understanding Jesus, and it's all sort of come to this final moment. Jesus is. In an upper room in Jerusalem on the eve of the Passover, this event called the Last Supper that has been depicted in art across the world. And Jesus begins to tell his disciples that somebody's going to betray him. And he very clearly points Judas out and says, You're the one that's going to do it. And Judas, sort of overwhelmed with guilt, knowing that that's kind of been his plan all along, has left the room. Judas is gone. Judas is gone to turn Jesus over to the religious authorities, and then Jesus turns his attention to the disciples. And he starts to kind of tell them from verse, chapter 15 through to 17 everything that's about to happen. He, he starts to get them ready for what's going on. It's, this is a terrible analogy, but it's like Liam Neeson in Taken, where he's on the phone with his daughter in the beginning, and he goes, here's what's about to happen. I need, you, I need you to be aware of these things. And this is essentially what Jesus does. He says, I need you to love one another, Also, you should expect the world to hate you. By the way, I'm leaving. Also, I'm sending the Holy Spirit so you're not totally alone. He starts to launch into everything that's about to happen. Here's what you need to prepare yourself for. And after all of this preparing in chapter 16 and chapter 17, after all of this, he reaches the end. The last thing that he says in John's gospel before the guards come and find him in Gethsemane. Being in college and career ministry over the last six years or so, I'm coming up on six years in December, um, I have been able to walk with people through really interesting seasons of life. This is like right around the time when people start to get married, mid-20s, and so especially last fall, I found myself officiating more weddings than I knew what to do with. Five weddings in two months. There, there was one weekend where there was two weddings in one weekend and then I got on a plane after the last one and flew to Scotland. So my fall was absolutely unreal in 2018. And marriage and getting married is sort of a process. There are things that need to be done, things that need to be get in, gotten in order, preparations that need to be made in order for this significant event to take place. And so with all of these couples, we, we walk through all sorts of things, whether they did premarital counseling with somebody else here at the church, or whether we just had conversations over their preparation. There's bank accounts that need to be merged. There's dreams of the future that need to be shared. There's dreams that you don't want to come true, nightmares of the future that you should also share, like, hey, I don't want 45 kids. Uh, you should share that before you get married. There's all this preparation. But in the end, after all the preparation, every single marriage I officiated in the fall, it all ended in the same place. For me, at least. Standing backstage, if you will, with the groom and with his groomsmen, waiting for the music to start so we would all walk out. It all ends in the same place. And at the end, after all the preparations are done, after all of the counseling is finished, after all the bank accounts have been merged, In that moment, there's only really one thing left. And so, without fail, I would turn to the groom and I would say, hey, we need to take a second to pray. Like, you've done everything you can, you've gone through all of the counseling, you've jumped through all the hoops that I demanded of you to officiate this wedding. All that's left for us now is to commit the future into the hands of God, and just trust that he's got this, come what may. And this is essentially what happens At the end of Jesus' time in the upper room, he's prepared the disciples. He's told them what's coming. He's told them how to treat each other. He's promised the Spirit. And then in chapter 17, verse 1, after Jesus had done all of this and spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all to whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And Jesus begins to pray. He begins to pray for his disciples. And he prays for all sorts of things. He prays that the Father would keep them in his name. He prays that they would be protected from the work of Satan. He prays that they would be sanctified in the truth. He prays all of these things over the disciples at the end of his time with them. And that must have been a really profound moment for them. Because as dim-witted as the disciples are, they know something big is about to happen. They know something important is going on. They may not understand what it is or how it's going to happen. But this is a big deal. And they know that. And they also know, because they've been with Jesus for three years, that this particular figure they've been following has a special relationship with the Father. And here he is... Leveraging that, if you will, to pray for them. But after Jesus prays for the disciples, he turns his attention not to the immediate future, but he turns his attention to a future beyond the future in front of him, the cross and the empty tomb. He starts to pray not just for those who believe in him in the upper room, but he says in verse 20, I don't ask for these only, but also for all those who would believe in me through their word. That's a really profound thing. I don't know if you've read ahead in John or come to this passage, but Jesus is quite literally praying for you if you're a Christian in this room. In this this moment, in these verses, you are hearing what Jesus prayed for you on the night when he was betrayed. He prays not just for his immediate followers. He prays for the church, all who will believe. And this is what he prays for us. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So when Jesus turns his attention to us in his prayer, the first thing he prays, what what do you think it might be? You think it would be something like, man, I hope, I mean, if we're just going off of what we pray, I hope they have a really good day today, or on whatever day they read this. Father, I really hope that you protect them in the midst of persecution and keep them healthy, wealthy, and wise. Father, I pray for all those who believe that they would have traveling mercies at all the things that we say. No, what Jesus actually prays for us, what Jesus prays for those who will believe, is that they would be one. The most important thing in Jesus' mind when he turns his attention to future generations of Christians the thing he asks the Father for is unity. He prays for the church to be united. And I wonder if, if Jesus prays this because he knows that Christians are going to be really, really good at turning on each other and splintering and fracturing and splitting over silly, stupid things. He prays for the unity of the church above all else. But we as Christians, we find all sorts of ways to ignore this or to work in opposition to it. Churches splinter over so many things. Ministries divide over so many things. Christians are not one because of so many different reasons. There's more than one way to split a church. One of the most prominent ways that Christians fail to live out Jesus' plea here is just relationally. So like when I was in when I was in college, I went to a, a local college ministry and really and truly it, it was incredibly significant in my Christian life. It's one of the reasons why I went into ministry. It, it gave me a vision in a lot of ways for, for what uh, good preaching looks like. It was, it was important. But here's the problem with college ministries. Um, single Christians who don't want to be single Christians anymore go to college ministry so they can find someone to marry. And when people are looking for someone to marry, they get really, really angry when the dating pool shrinks. And so here's what happened when I was in this college ministry, is so and so would like such and such, but such and such wouldn't like them, they would like this other person. And then the war would start. There would be all of this anger and all of this bitterness because I like this person, but they don't like me back. Or two people would start dating and there would be all sorts of conflict because it's like, well, I don't think they're right for each other. As though this third party has any business telling people who are right for each other. Or such and such said something about me that really offended me. So I'm going to go tell all of my friends and they're definitely going to make sure not to sit next to them at service on Wednesday night. Conflict after conflict after conflict, all of this backbiting, all of this infighting, all of this pettiness to the point that there were people, whole groups of this ministry that wouldn't interact with each other because they'd all taken sides. It was, like, it was like World War I where everybody was in like a treaty with another nation. And so when one person went to war, everybody had to go with them because they were all bound up together. It was unbelievable. And yet this happens all the time in churches. Pettiness, stupidity, gossip, backbiting, all of this silly stuff. And listen, I'm, I'm not saying that this stuff isn't painful. I'm not saying some of this stuff isn't difficult. Life is complicated. Life is messy. Putting a group of people together under one roof who come from different backgrounds, different experiences, that is not neat and tidy. And sometimes people are going to be hurt and sometimes people are going to be offended. And sometimes people are going to do things that are stupid that hurt other people. I'm not saying that, none, that any of this is easy to sort out, but what I am saying is that as Christians, in the midst of pain, in the midst of frustration, we still belong to each other. We still belong to one another. We're still one body, even if that body wants to poke its eyes out, even if that body is frustrated with another part of the body. And so we pursue unity. One of the things that I guess... Whatever my experience counts for here, one of the things that I constantly hear are people saying things like, I hate drama. I just hate drama. Can I tell you, nobody who says that really means that. Every person I've known who says I hate drama are the people who thrive on it. It is like the spinach to their Popeye. They just live off of drama. And then they go, I hate drama. No, you don't. No, you don't. You love it. It's it's what makes your life interesting. Let me just say, if, if you're that sort of person who kind of likes conflict, kind of likes to see people at odds with each other, who likes the nitpickiness, I don't think I'm overstating my case here. But if you are the sort of person who sort of thrives on conflict, especially in the church community, Jesus is praying against you right now. Jesus is quite literally praying against you because he does not want his body to be divided, but united. And you need to repent of that. But the church doesn't just divide over relational issues. We, we don't fail to live up to this thing that Jesus prays for, unity, just there. We can, we can divide over things that are of more eternal consequence. We can, we can divide over theological issues as well. If I can just kind of go back to um, my experience in college ministry right around the time that I started going to the ministry I was a part of, um, the ideas of Calvinism dropped like a bomb. Like everybody found John Piper, basically. And what followed from that was everybody battling each other over these ideas. So Bible studies turned into battlegrounds. Um, Small groups turned into war zones. Everybody just got really, really heated and they dug their heels in really hard. And it... It's not, it's not just that, oh, people had convictions that they disagreed on, but they started sort of cutting each other off. I remember having a, having a conversation with a friend of mine. And Here's the thing. For all of the, all of the drama and all of the gossip, like nobody talked to me, so they couldn't talk bad about me. And nobody liked me, so nobody could be jealous of me. So I was pretty much safe the entire time. But I was having a conversation with somebody. and I was like, what do you think about all this stuff? I've got opinions, but people are arguing about this and he goes yeah I'm pretty much at the point where I think that anybody who's not a Calvinist is probably a heretic and I said huh right this is my passive aggressive way of just avoiding conflict but here's the thing especially for those of us who are like big on theology and we like to think deeply about the faith um, the real temptation is to pick the wrong hills to die on and to destroy the unity of the church over it The real temptation is to die on the foothills before you ever get to a mountain. Here's what can tend to happen for us is we can just listen to a lot of people who we like and who we agree with because it's good to listen to to people that build us up and edify us. But if you listen to so many people who agree with you on every single jot and tittle of every single doctrinal minutia, you will build for yourself an echo chamber. And the longer that you live in that echo chamber, the more tempted you will be to think that anybody who's not in the chamber is probably not in the kingdom either. And in so doing, you destroy the unity of the church. So let me, let me step on everybody's toes at once. If the only sort of teachers that you listen to are people like um, an Andy Stanley uh, or a Steve Furtick who tend to be more opposed to deeper theological conversations, you got to listen to more people. Stop listening to them for a while. Listen to somebody else. Listen to other Christians with other opinions. If the only sort of people that you listen to are um, John, Ma- John Piper, John MacArthur, the Calvinist Johns, listen to more people. Listen to somebody else who loves Jesus and doesn't agree with them. If, if the only people you listen to are the, the Leighton Flowers or the Craig Groeschels who are rabidly anti-Calvinist, listen to more people. Listen to other Christians who don't agree with them. If you listen to Joel Olstein, turn him off because he's a heretic. <laughs> But the, bo- the body of Christ is, is wider than we often give it credit for. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that truth doesn't matter. But what I'm saying is it is important to know which truths matter most so we don't divide the body of Christ unnecessarily. Jesus is praying for our unity here. And we need to take that seriously. I'm not saying don't have convictions, but I'm saying it's important to keep what is primary, primary, so that issues that are important but secondary. Don't become sources of division in the body of Christ. Jesus prays that we would be one. He prays that we would be one. And so we shouldn't celebrate the things that separate us from other Christians. We should pursue the unity that comes from truth together. Jesus prays that we would be one. But notice that Jesus actually goes a step further in his prayer for unity. He prays that we would be one, but then he says we would be one just as the Father is in him and he is in the Father, that they also would be in the Father and the Son, that the world might believe that you have sent me. Jesus grounds our unity in something. He gives our unity, our oneness, a purpose. He orients it towards something. He says that we should be united as Christians. We should live as one body, which is what all the passages we read during worship are about. It's about unity. We should live as one body just as the Father and the Son are united. That the ground of our unity is actually the unity of God himself. Um, It's important to kind of recognize Jesus and the Father are not like a blob. They're not melded together. There's distinction between the Father and the Son. We say that they're one. We're not saying that they're undifferentiated. But, but that the Father and the Son are united by one will, they're united in one purpose, one goal. They together operate inseparably. There's a, there's a fancy word you can impress your friends at Starbucks with. It's a theological concept called inseparable operations. And, and basically what inseparable operations is, is this. You can't point to any one thing that God does and divvy it up to one member of the Trinity. So you can't say the Father created or Jesus saved Jesus saves actually denying something really fundamental. God saves, right? Uh, God creates. It's not that one person does one thing, but that they are doing these things together inseparably. And Jesus says, just as, as I am in you and you are in me, the church is to work together in unity towards a common goal that the unity of the God that we serve should be the grounds for our unity with one another as we pursue the good news of the gospel going forward in the world. That we are united just as the Father and Son are united. But then he says something that I have wrestled with for years. He wants us to be unified because of the unity of the Father and the Son and for the purpose of the world believing that Jesus has been sent from the Father. Let them be one so that the world will believe you sent me. And I don't presume to fully understand this, but I think it's astounding to think about the fact that Jesus thinks The integrity of his message depends on the unity of his church. In Christ's mind and in Christ's prayer, when Christians are divided, it makes the gospel look untrue. When Christians are divided, it calls into question the truth of everything that Jesus has said about himself. When Christians are at odds with one another, it makes Jesus look like a liar when he says, I've come from the Father. The integrity of the gospel depends on the unity of the church. Father, that they would be one so that the world would believe that you sent me. But there's maybe a further end in mind in Jesus' prayer. He says this in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. This maybe the last ground of us being united as Christians is a shared common end. Um, When I was in elementary school and middle school, I watched a lot of anime. I loved Dragon Ball Z, and because of that, I really wanted to be an artist. And by that, I meant that I just wanted to draw pictures of Goku for a living. That's what I wanted. My uncle was a phenomenal artist. He was trained as a landscape architect, so he basically just drew pictures of gardens all day. He'd probably make a killing on Pinterest or Etsy now. And so my parents hired him as my art teacher, and we sat down for the first day, and I bought all my art supplies, which that's like the best part of learning something is buying the supplies for it, and then when you actually have to use the supplies, you don't really care as much about it as you did. It's the same with school. So I bought all my art supplies, and I go to like the first art lesson with my Uncle John Fully ready to draw giant robots and all the things that I think come with being a good artist. And he says, "Okay, day one. Let me tell you what all of the things I told you to buy at the art supply store were." So he points out all these pencils, and then he goes, "Okay, we're going to learn how to draw lines and circles." Like so that must be like a name for like a robot, right? No, lines and circles. Day one. Um, And so he taught me how to draw circles and he taught me how to draw lines. And when he was teaching me lines, he said, here's the problem with the way that most people draw lines, Travis. Um, They look at the point of their pen as it makes contact with the paper. And as they draw the line, they look at the pen when it touches the paper the whole way. And what happens when you're focusing on the point of pen to paper is that you always draw crooked lines. When you're looking in the moment, when you're looking at what is happening currently, you will always draw crooked lines but if you draw a dot at one end you draw a dot at the other end and you put that pen on that dot and you look at the end point and you just bring your hand towards it you'll draw straight lines every time that's the trick knowing where the line is going produces a straight line in the meantime and so when jesus is praying for the unity of the church one of the last things that he prays for is that we would be with him where he is going And we would see his glory. He puts an end point on the church's life. He says, this is where my people are going. To be with me. To see me in the glory that I had before the foundations of the world. And so there is something about knowing that that's where we're going together as Christians. That is where the church is heading that should affect the way that we relate to one another right now. So the line is drawn straight. the circle is encompassing. Where's the church heading? Where are the people that Jesus prays for going? We are heading for the day in which Jesus' prayer is answered. When we will be in the presence of the Father, and we will see the glory of Christ together. And on that day, we will stand shoulder to shoulder with Calvinists, Arminians, Lutherans, Presbyterians, complementarians, egalitarians, the guy in youth group who broke your heart because he liked the girl in your small group. We will see that together. The church will stand before the throne of Christ as one. So we'd better start living as one now as we look towards the endpoint that Jesus dropped for us. So Jesus prays this for you if you're a Christian in this world, in this room, or the world. I don't ask for these things only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, and I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we know that you answer the prayers of Jesus. We know that the plea for the church to be won, it will come to pass. It's a matter of when, not if. God, make us a people who strive for unity now, not at the expense of truth, not at the expense of holiness. But don't make us a people who fail to strive for it because we think it's impossible. Jesus prayed for it, we know that it will be done. Teach us to love one another, to prefer one another, to care for one another, to honor one another, to be united around the truth of the gospel. As we look for the day when we will see Jesus, we ask all these things in Christ's name. And we say,